Section 44 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 5. Section 44. George Brandes, 1842-1927, by William Morton Payne. The man of letters who devotes himself chiefly or wholly to criticism is an essentially modern type. Although the critical art has been practiced in all literary periods, it has not until the present century enlisted anything like the exclusive attention of writers of the highest order of attainment but has rather played a subordinate part beside the constructive or creative work to the performance of which such men have given their best energies in the case of some writers such as voltaire and samuel johnson we recognize the critical spirit that informs the bulk of their work yet are compelled on the whole to classify them as poets or historians or philosophers even coleridge who wrote no inconsiderable amount of the best literary criticism in existence is chiefly remembered as a poet even lessing one of the fountainheads of authoritative critical doctrine owes to his plays the major part of his great reputation as for such men as ben jonson and dryden lamb and shelley goethe and heine their critical utterances precious and profound as they frequently are figure but incidentally among their writings and we read these men mainly for other reasons than that of learning their opinions about other people's productions. For examples of the man of letters considered primarily as critic, we must then look to our own century, and we find the type best illustrated by such men as Saint-Beuve, Tan, Brunetier, and the subject of the present sketch. It is indeed a rather remarkable fact that the most conspicuous figure of literary Denmark at the present time should not be a poet or a novelist, but a critic, pure and simple. For this is the title which must be given to George Brandes. Not only is his attitude consistently critical throughout the long series of his writings, but his form and matter are also avowedly critical, so much so that hardly one of his score or more of published volumes calls for classification in any other than the critical category. Even when he takes us with him upon his travels to France or Russia, with the best intentions in the world, as to the avoidance of, quote, shop, end quote, he finds himself in the end talking about the literature and politics of those countries. One of his latest books, 
Udenlandske Egni Og Personlegator Foreign Parts and Personalities has a preface with the following opening paragraph. Quote, One gets tired of talking about books all the time. Even the man whose business it is to express himself in black and white has eyes like other people, and with them he perceives and observes the variegated visible world, its landscapes, cities, plain, and cultivated men, plastic art. For him, too, does nature exist, the capital N for nature. He, too, is moved at sight of such simple happenings as the fall of the leaves in October. He, too, is stirred as he gazes upon a waterfall, a mountain region, a sunlit glacier, a Dutch lake, and an Italian olive grove. He, too, has been to Arcadia. Yet half the contents of the volume thus introduced must be described as the work of the critic. Not only are the set papers upon such men as Taine, Renan, Maupassant, deliberate critical studies, but the sketches of travel likewise are sure to get around to the art and literature of the countries visited. The life of criticism, in the larger sense, comes from wide observation and a cultivation of the cosmopolitan spirit. It must be said of Brandes that he is a critic in the large sense, that he has taken for his province the modern spirit in all its varied manifestations. The very title of his chief work, Main Currents in the Literature of the Nineteenth Century, shows him to be concerned with the broad movements of thought rather than with matters of narrow technique or the literary activity of any one country, least of all his own. It was peculiarly fortunate for Denmark that a critic of his type should have arisen within her borders a quarter century ago. The Scandinavian countries lie so far apart from the chief centers of European thought that they are always in danger of lapsing into a narrow self-sufficiency so far as intellectual ideals are concerned. Danish literature has been made what it is chiefly by the mediation of a few powerful minds who have kept it in touch with modern progress, by Holberg, who may almost be said to have brought humanism into Denmark, by Ohnschlager, who made the Romantic movement as powerful an influence in Denmark as it was in Germany, by Brandes, who beginning his career just after the war in which Denmark lost her provinces and became as embittered toward Germany as France was to become a few years later, strove to prevent the political breach from extending into the intellectual sphere and helped his fellow countrymen to understand that thought and progress are one and have a common aim, although nations may be many and antagonistic. There is much significance in the fact that the name of emigrant literature is given to the first section of his greatest work. He thus styles the French literature of a century ago, the work of such writers as Chateaubriand, Senancourt, 
Constant and Madame de Stal, because it received a vivifying impulse from the emigration, from the contact, forced or voluntary, of the French mind with the ideals of German and English civilization. It has been the chief function of Brandes during the whole of his brilliant career to supply points of contact between the intellectual life of Denmark and that of the rest of Europe, to bring his own country into the Federal Republic of Letters. A glance at the course of his life and at the subjects of his books will serve to outline the nature of the work to which his energies have been devoted. A Jew by race, George Morris Cohen Brandes, was born February 4, 1842. He went through his academic training with brilliant success, studied law for a brief period, and then drifted into journalism and literature. A long visit to Paris, 1866-7, gave him breadth of view, and the materials for his first books, Esthétique Studia, Esthetic Studies, then Fransk Esthetic, French Esthetics, and a volume of Critiker og Portretar, Criticisms and Portraits. A later visit to foreign parts, 1870-1, brought him into contact with Taine, Renan, and Mill, all of whom influenced him profoundly. In 1871, he began to lecture on literary subjects, chiefly in Copenhagen, and out of these lectures grew his Hovedstraminger i det Nitend a hundreds literatur, main currents in the literature of the 19th century, a work that in the course of about ten years extended to six volumes and must be considered not only the author's capital critical achievement, but also one of the greatest works of literary history and criticism that the 19th century has produced. The division of the subject is as follows. 1. Emigrant Literature 2. The Romantic School in Germany 3. The Reaction in France 4. Naturalism in England 5. The Romantic School in France 6. Young Germany in spite of the growing fame that came to him from these masterly studies, Brandes felt the need of a larger audience than the Scandinavian countries could offer him, and in 1877 changed his residence from Copenhagen to Berlin, a step to which he was in part urged by violent antagonism engendered at home by the radical and uncompromising character of many of his utterances. It was not until 1883 that he again took up residence in his own country upon a guarantee of 4,000 kroner, about $1,000 annually, for 10 years, secured by some of his friends, the condition being that he should give courses of public lectures 
in Copenhagen during that period. Among the works not yet named, mention should be made of his volumes upon Holberg, Tegner, Kierkegaard, Ferdinand Lassalle, and the Earl of Beaconsfield. These brilliant monographs are remarkable for their insight into the diverse types of character with which they deal, for their breadth of view, felicity of phrase, and originality of treatment. There are also several collections of miscellaneous essays with such titles as Dansk Lichter, Danish Poets, Dansk Personlichter, Danish Personalities, Det Modern German Bruts Made, Men of the Modern Awakening, and Udenlandske Eigne og Personlichter, Foreign Parts and Personalities. The latest publication of Brandes is a careful study of Shakespeare, a work of remarkable vigor, freshness, and sympathy. As a critic, Brandes belongs distinctly to the class of those who speak with authority, and has little in common with the writers who are content to explore the recesses of their own subjectivity and record their personal impressions of literature. Criticism is for him a matter of science, not of opinion, and he holds it subject to a definite method and body of principles. A few sentences from the second volume of his Ovidstrominger will illustrate what he conceives that method to be. Quote, First and foremost, I endeavor everywhere to bring literature back to life. You will already have observed that while the older controversies in our literature, for example, that between Heiberg and Hulk, and even the famous controversy between Bagason and Owenslager, have been maintained in an exclusively literary domain, and have become disputes about literary principles alone, the controversy aroused by my lectures, not merely by reason of the misapprehension of the opposition, but quite as much by reason of the very nature of my writing, has come to touch upon a swarm of religious, social, and moral problems. It follows from my conception of the relation of literature to life that the history of literature I teach is not a history of literature for the drawing-room. I seize hold of actual life with all the strength I may, and show how the feelings that find their expression in literature spring up in the human heart. Now the human heart is no stagnant pool or idyllic woodland lake. It is an ocean with submarine vegetation and frightful inhabitants. The literary history and the poetry of the drawing-room see in the life of man a salon, a decorated ballroom, the men and the furnishings polished alike, in which no dark corners escape illumination. Let him who will look at matters from this point of view, but it is no affair of mine. The boldness and even the ruthlessness which characterize much of the author's work were plainly foreshadowed in this outspoken introduction, and he has grown 
more rather than less uncompromising during the quarter century that has elapsed since they were spoken matthew arnold would have applauded the envisagement of literature as quote, criticism of life end quote, but would have deplored the sacrifice of sweetness to gain increased intensity of light brandes came back from contact with the european world full of enthusiasm for the new men and the new ideas for comte and taine for renan and mill and spencer and wanted his recalcitrant fellow-countrymen to accept them all at once they were naturally taken aback by so imperious a demand and their opposition created the atmosphere of controversy in which brandes has ever since for the most part lived with slight effort to soften its asperities but it must be added with the ever-increasing respect of those not of his own way of thinking on the whole his work has been healthful and stimulating it has stirred the sluggish to a renewed mental activity and has made its author himself one of the most conspicuous figures of what he calls det modern zenumbrud the modern awakening william morton payne bjornsson from eminent authors of the nineteenth century translated by professor rasmus b anderson it is only necessary to bestow a single glance upon bjornsson to be convinced how admirably he is equipped by nature for the hot strife a literary career brings with it in most lands and especially in the combat-loving north shoulders as broad as his are not often seen nor do we often behold so vigorous a form one that seems as though created to be chiselled in granite there is perhaps no labor that so completely excites all the vital forces exhausts the nerves refines and enervates the feelings as that of literary production there has never been the slightest danger however that the exertions of bjornsson's poetic productiveness would affect his lungs as in the case of schiller or his spine as in the case of heine there has been no cause to fear that inimical articles in the public journals would ever give him his death-blow as they did Halvdan, the hero of his drama Redaktoren, the editor, or that he would yield, as so many modern poets have yielded, to the temptation of resorting to pernicious stimulants or to dissipation of antidotes for the overwrought or depleted state of the nervous system occasioned by creative activity. Nothing has injured Björnsund's spine. His lungs are without blemish, cough is unknown to him and his shoulders are fashioned to bear without discomposure the rude thrusts which the world gives and to return them he is perhaps the only important writer of our day of whom this may be said as an author he is never nervous not when he displays his greatest delicacy not even when he evinces 
his most marked sensibility strong as the beast of prey whose name Bjorn equals bear occurs twice in his muscular without the slightest trace of corpulence of athletic build he looms up majestically in my mind with his massive head his firmly compressed lips and his sharp penetrating gaze from behind his spectacles it would be impossible for literary hostilities to overthrow this man and for him there never existed that greatest danger to authors a danger which for a long time menaced his great rival heinrich ibsen namely that of having his name shrouded in silence even as a very young author as a theatrical critic and political writer he had entered the field of literature with such an eagerness for combat that a rumbling noise arose about him wherever he appeared like his own thorbjorn in nove solbaquen he displayed in early youth the combative tendency of the athlete but like his sigurd in sigurd slumbe he fought not merely to practice his strength but from genuine though often mistaken love of truth and justice at all events he understood thoroughly who to attract attention an author may possess great and rare gifts and yet through lack of harmony between his own personal endowments and the national characteristics or the degree of development of his people may long be prevented from attaining a brilliant success many of the world's greatest minds have suffered from this cause many like byron heine and heinrich ibsen have left their native land many more who have remained at home have felt forsaken by their compatriots with bjorsen the case is quite different he has never it is true been peacefully recognized by the entire norwegian people at first because the form he used was too new and unfamiliar later because his ideas were of too challenging a nature for the ruling conservative and highly orthodox circles of the land even at the present time he is pursued by the press of the norwegian government and by leading official society with a fury which is as little choice in its selection of means as the bitterness which pursues the champions of thrones and altars in other countries in spite of all this Bjornsson has his people behind him and about him as perhaps no other poet has unless it be victor hugo when his name is mentioned it is equivalent to hoisting the flag of norway in his noble qualities and in his faults in his genius and in his weak points he as thoroughly bears the stamp of norway as voltaire bore that of france his boldness and his naivete his open-heartedness as a man and the terseness of his style as an artist the highly wrought and sensitive norwegian popular sentiment and the lively consciousness of the one-sidedness 
and the intellectual needs of his fellow countrymen that has driven him to Scandinavianism, Pan-Teutonism, and Cosmopolitanism. All this, in its peculiar combination in him, is so markedly national that his personality may be said to offer a resume of the entire people. None of his contemporaries so fully represent this people's love of home and of freedom, its self-consciousness, rectitude, and fresh energy. Indeed, just now he also exemplifies on a large scale the people's tendency to self-criticism, not that scourging criticism which chastises with scorpions and whose representative in Norway is Ibsen, in Russia, Turgenev, but the sharp, bold expression of opinion begotten of love. He never calls attention to an evil in whose improvement and cure he does not believe, or to a vice which he despairs of seeing rooted out. For he has implicit faith in the good of humanity, and possesses entire and invincible optimism of a large, genial, sanguine nature. As to his character, he is half chieftain, half poet. He unites in his own person the two forms most prominent in ancient Norway, those of the warrior and of the skald. In his intellectual constitution, he is partly a tribune of the people, partly a lay preacher. In other words, he combines in his public demeanor the political and religious pathos of his Norwegian contemporaries. And this became far more apparent after he broke loose from orthodoxy than it was before. Since his so-called apostasy, he has in fact been a missionary and a reformer to a greater degree than ever. He could have been the product of no other land than Norway, and far less than other offers could he thrive in any but his native soil. In the year 1880, when the rumor spread through the German press that Björsson, weary of continual wrangling at home, was about to settle in Germany, he wrote to me, quote, In Norway will I live, in Norway will I lash and be lashed, in Norway will I sing and die. End quote. To hold such intimate relations with one's fatherland is most fortunate for a person who is sympathetically comprehended by that fatherland, and this is the case with Björsson. It is a matter dependent on conditions deeply rooted in his nature. He who cherishes so profound an enthusiasm for the reserved, solitary Michelangelo, and who feels constrained as a matter of course to place him above Raphael, is himself a man of a totally different temperament, one who is never lonely, even when most alone, parenthesis, as he has been since 1873 on his guard in remote Gosdal, in parenthesis, but who is social to the core, or, more strictly speaking, a thoroughly national character. He admires Michelangelo, 
because he reveres and understands the elements of greatness of profound earnestness of mighty ruggedness in the human heart and in style but he has nothing in common with the great florentine's melancholy sense of isolation he was born to be the founder of a party and was therefore early attracted to enthusiastic and popular party leaders such as the dane grundvig and the norwegian fergeland although wholly unlike either in his plastic creative power he is a man who needs to feel himself the center or rather the focus of sympathy and insensibly he forms a circle about him because his own nature is the resume of a social union copyright t y crowell and company new york the historical movement in modern literature from the introduction to main currents in the literature of the nineteenth century what i shall portray for you is a historical movement having very completely the form and the character of a drama the six distinct literary groups that i intend to present to you are entirely like the six acts of a great play in the first group the French emigrant literature inspired by Rousseau. The reaction has already begun, but the reactionary currents are everywhere blended with the revolutionary. In the second group, the half-Catholic Romantic School of Germany, the reaction is growing. It goes further and holds itself more aloof from the contemporary movement towards freedom and progress. The third group, finally formed of such writers as Joseph Damastre, Le Menet in his Orthodox period, Lamartine and Victor Hugo under the Restoration, when they were still firm supporters of the legitimist and clerical parties, stands for the reaction, impetuous and triumphant. Byron and his associates make up the fourth group, this one man reverses the action of the great drama. The Greek war of liberation breaks out. A current of fresh air sweeps over Europe. Byron falls as a hero of the Greek cause, and his heroic death makes a deep impression upon all the writers of the continent. Just before the July Revolution, all the great French writers turn about, forming the fifth group the French Romantic School, and the new liberal movement is marked by the names of Le Manet, Hugo, Lamartine, de Marseille, George Sand, and many others. And when the movement spreads from France into Germany, liberal ideas triumph in that land also, and the sixth and the last group of authors I shall portray become inspired by the ideas of the July Revolution, in the war of liberation seeing like the french poets in byron's great shade the leader of the movement towards freedom the most important of these young writers are of jewish origin as hain borne and later auerbach 
I believe that from this great drama we may get a lesson for our own instruction. We are now, as usual, forty years behind the rest of Europe. In the literatures of those great countries, the revolutionary stream, long ago united with its tributaries, burst the dikes that were set to impede its course, and has been distributed into thousands of channels. We are still endeavoring to check it and hold it, dammed up in the swamps of the reaction, but we have succeeded only in checking our literature itself. It would hardly be difficult to secure unanimous consent to the proposition that Danish literature has at no time during the present century found itself languishing as in our own days. Poetical production is almost completely checked, and no problem of a general human or social character awakens interest or evokes any more serious discussion than that of the daily press or other ephemeral publication. Our productivity has never been strongly original, and we now utterly fail to appropriate the spiritual life of other lands, and our spiritual deafness has brought upon us the speechlessness of the deaf mutes. The proof that a literature in our days is alive is to be found in the fact that it brings problems up for debate. Thus George Sand brings marriage up for debate. Voltaire, Byron, and Feuerbach, religion. Proudhon, property. Alexander Dumas, feels the relations of the sexes. And Emile Auger, social relations in general. For a literature to bring nothing up for debate is the same thing as to lose all its significance. The people that produce such a literature may believe as firmly as they please that the salvation of the world will come from it, but their expectations will be doomed to disappointment. Such a people can no more influence the development of civilization in the direction of progress than did the fly who thought he was urging the carriage onward by now and then giving the four horses an insignificant prick. Many virtues, as for example warlike courage, may be preserved in such a society, but these virtues cannot sustain literature when intellectual courage has sunk and disappeared. All stagnant reaction is tyrannical, and when a community has by degrees so developed itself that it wears the features of tyranny beneath the mask of freedom, when every outspoken utterance that gives uncompromising expression to free thought is frowned upon by society, by the respectable part of the press, and by many officials of the state, very unusual conditions will be needed to call forth characters and talents of the sort upon which progress in any society depends. Should such a community develop a kind of poetry, we need not wonder over much if its essential tendency be to scorn the age and put it to shame. Such poetry will again and again describe the men of the time as wretches, and it may well happen that the books which are the most famous and the most sought after, parenthesis, Ibsen's Brand, for example, on parenthesis, 
will be those in which the reader is made to feel at first with a sort of horror and afterwards with a sort of satisfaction what a worm he is how miserable and how cowardly it may happen too that for such a people the word will capitalized becomes a sort of catchword that it may cry aloud with dramas of the will capitalized and philosophies of the will capitalized men demand that which they do not possess they call for that of which they most bitterly feel the lack they call for that which there is the keenest inquiry for yet one would be mistaken were he pessimistically to assume that in such a people there is less courage resolution enthusiasm and will than in the average of others there is quite as much courage and freedom of thought but still more is needed for when the reaction in a literature forces the new ideas into the background and when a community has daily heard itself blamed derided and even cursed for its hypocrisy and its conventionality yet has remained convinced of its openness of mind daily swinging censors before its own nostrils in the praise thereof it requires unusual ability and unusual force of will to bring new blood into its literature a soldier needs no uncommon courage to fire upon the enemy from the shelter of an earthwork but if he has been led so ill that he finds no shelter at hand we need not wonder if his courage forsakes him various causes have contributed to the result that our literature has accomplished less than the great ones in the service of progress the very circumstances that have favored the development of our poetry have stood in our way i may in the first place mention a certain childishness in the character of our people we owe to this quality the almost unique naivete of our poetry naivete is an eminently poetical quality and we find it in nearly all of our poets from owenschlager through ingemann and anderson to holstrup but naivete does not imply the revolutionary propensity i may further mention the abstract idealism so strongly marked in our literature it deals with our dreams not with our life it sometimes happens to the dane on his travels that a foreigner after some desultory talk about denmark asks him this question how may one learn what are the aspirations of your country has your contemporary literature developed any type that is palpable and easily grasped the dane is embarrassed in his reply they all know of what class were the types that the eighteenth century bequeathed to the nineteenth let us name one or two representative types in the case of a single country germany there is nathan the wise the ideal of the period of enlightenment that is the period of tolerance noble humanity and thoroughgoing rationalism we can hardly say that we have held fast to this ideal or carried it on to further development as it was carried on by schleiermacher and many others in germany 
Minster was our Schleiermacher, and we know how far his orthodoxy stands removed from Schleiermacher's liberalism. Instead of adopting rationalism and carrying it on, we have stepped farther and farther away from it. Clausen was once its advocate, but he is so no more. Heiberg is followed by Martinson, and Martinson's speculative dogmatic is succeeded by his Christian dogmatic. In Owenschlager's poetry, there is still the breath of rationalism, but the generation of Owenschlager and Oersted is followed by that of Kierkegaard and Paudlin Müller. The German literature of the 18th century bequeathed to us many other poetic ideals. There is Wertha, the ideal of the, quote, storm and stress, end quote, period, of the struggle of nature and passion, with the customary order of society. Then there is Faust, the very spirit of the new age, with its new knowledge, who, still unsatisfied with what the period of enlightenment has won, foresees a higher truth, a higher happiness, and a thousandfold higher power. And there is Wilhelm Meister, the type of humanized culture who goes through the school of life and from apprenticeship becomes master, who begins with the pursuit of ideals that soar above life and who ends by discerning the ideal in the real, for whom these two expressions finally melt into one. There is Goethe's Prometheus, who, chained to his rock, gives utterance to the philosophy of Spinoza in the sublime rhythms of enthusiasm. Last of all, there is the Marquis von Posa, the true incarnation of the revolution, the apostle and prophet of liberty, the type of a generation that would, by means of the uprising against all condemned traditions, make progress possible and bring happiness to mankind. With such types in the past our Danish literature begins. Does it develop them further? We may not say that it does. For what is the test of progress? It is what happens afterward. It has not been printed in this shape, but I will tell you about it. One fine day, when Werther was going about as usual, dreaming despairingly of Latte, it occurred to him that the bond between her and Albert was of slight consequence, and he won her from Albert. One fine day, the Marquis von Posa, wearied of preaching freedom to the deaf ears at the court of Philip II, and drove a sword through the king's body, and Prometheus rose from his rock and overthrew Olympus, and Faust, who had knelt abjectly before the earth spirit, took possession of his earth and subdued it by means of steam and electricity and methodical investigation. Translated by W. M. Payne End of section 44